Before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you about Aventure, a new platform that's making venture capital available to the masses. It doesn't matter if you are an accredited or non-accredited investor. Aventure provides a opportunity to diversify your investment portfolio by providing access to investing in venture capital funds. The Aventure app provides everything you need to make startup investments, including extensive research material, seamless transaction processes, and allocation measures. For fund managers, Aventure seeks to help you streamline your operations and launch your fund. Now, typically, venture capital and startup investments are liquid, which is a major pain point in our industry. Aventure is fixing this by offering periodic withdrawals for its investors. I and many others in the industry are so excited about this launch. Their first fund launch is coming early next year. So if you want to be the first in the know, join their waitlist at aventure.vc. That's A-V-E-N-T-U-R-E dot V-C. Also check the link in the show notes. Aventure is a California-based fintech company and operates independently from investment advisors on its platform who may be registered as investment advisors in the U.S. or qualify for exempt reporting status. Hey, I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and this is the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. If you're enjoying the show, also subscribe to my newsletter at theconsumervc.com for all episodes directly to your inbox and a weekly roundup of all consumer venture deals happening. All content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. Before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you about Aventure, a new platform that's about to launch that's making venture capital available to the masses. It doesn't matter if you're accredited or non-accredited. Aventure provides an opportunity to diversify your investment portfolio and invest in private funds. If you're a fund manager, the Aventure app also provides everything you need in order to make startup investments, including extensive research materials, seamless transaction processes, and allocation measures so you can properly diversify your portfolio. Now, typically, venture capital and startup investments are liquid, which is a major pain point for industry. Aventure is fixing this by offering periodic withdrawals for its investors. I and many others in this industry are so excited about this launch, they are preparing to list their first fund in the beginning of next year. So if you want to be the first to know, join their waitlist at aventure.vc. Our guest today is Lydia Jett. She's the managing partner and head of e-commerce slash consumer internet investing at SoftBank Investment Advisors. Some of her investments include Coupon, Fanatics, and Misfits Market. We get into quite a few topics on this one, all centered around e-commerce and the future of e-commerce. We, we also discuss how she approaches investing at a global scale, particularly in emerging markets, and how she's thinking about capital deployment in this climate. I love this conversation. I really appreciate her coming on the show. Without further ado, here's Lydia. Lydia, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you today? I'm thrilled to finally be on the on the phone, on the podcast with you. So thank you for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. I know we've been uh, we've been talking about this for for a few months here. So really excited to have you on. Um, Want to start from the very beginning, I guess, from your SoftBank chapter in your career. What got you curious about e-commerce investing? Why did you pick? I guess would say e-commerce or how did e-commerce maybe find you? Um, and what was your path that eventually led to SoftBank? 
Yeah, I it's funny to think back that long because the world has changed so much. I did not come to SoftBank to invest in e-commerce companies. I thought I was coming to SoftBank to invest in domestic consumer internet companies. So um, it shows you how hard it is to predict the future. Um, but, but stepping back to 2015, I'd gotten a little bit delusioned. I'd been in private equity at that point for almost a decade, and the world felt so commodified. I was sitting in my second private equity fund thinking, how do I really differentiate myself to entrepreneurs? How do I make it about something more than I can move fastest or pay the most money? And it's really hard to do that at most funds. And so I had the opportunity to come to SoftBank, which was a Japanese operating company that very few people in the Americas had ever heard of, um, to launch a growth equity platform with a handful of people who looked nothing like me. And I got excited about being able to have an angle to talk to entrepreneurs about, to talk about our strength in Japan and our ability to help launch businesses in a really opaque economy um, where business expansion historically hasn't been that successful. And so I, I looked at SoftBank very simply as a big balance sheet with great distribution uh, scale and, and opportunity across Asia to talk to entrepreneurs about. So I, I joined in 2015. And I stepped inside the business. I spent a couple of weeks trying to figure out where I was and which way was up. And then I said, how do I use this platform to the best advantage of the assets we have? And I took a long time thinking about it and ultimately came back to how do I do something that's really different from what everyone else is doing? I don't want to compete with everyone else. And how do I do something that Masa fundamentally is already comfortable with so that I can be successful internally? And so I uh, came around to the idea that I'm going to invest large scale checks in e-commerce. And to tell you how crazy it was um, in 2015, when Venture had decided you cannot invest in e-commerce, everyone had lost their shirts in e-commerce. I had colleagues internally, I'll never forget, look at me and just say, you're insane. You're deciding to focus on something really narrow that no other investor actually respects or is interested in. So you'll never be able to find another job if you do this. Um, and it, it did kind of feel crazy to be so uncommercial. But again, I just wanted to be different. I, I didn't want to have to compete against the masses. And SoftBank was a really unique platform. So I spent the next handful of years myopically focused on horizontal e-commerce platforms around the world. And I got to meet with every company of any scale and compare a bunch of businesses that theoretically had very similar business models and learn about the world. And it was just a spectacular entry into a very different form of investing that I'd been doing for the prior decade. No, that's, um, I, I appreciate that. Um, I, I totally understand that you wanted to pick a category that was very different and also a category that you thought was maybe underserved or underappreciated. And, um, and, you know, probably investors at the time were saying, Oh, wait, wait, we, we have Amazon. There's nothing else. Like we don't like, wait, what, why, why focus on e-commerce? But I guess what were also like the kind of inclin, um, inklings or um, or I guess things that you saw that you that you thought actually led led you to believe there's actually a, a really big opportunity here. Yeah, and, and I I should be clear, being an investor, uh, it is really easy to assume that all innovation has already occurred. Um, it's really easy to look at all businesses and find flaws in them. It's it's easy to decide that the world is set and static. I think what's really hard is to reimagine something different. And, and that is what we do in venture and growth equity. Um, so I 
did say, I think US e-commerce is done. And God, how stupid was that? I should have just played Shopify for the past five years. Um, but I, I did. I said the US is done, but let's go someplace that isn't done and someplace where SoftBank has a real brand advantage um, and where there isn't a lot of capital. And so I ended up spending the next handful of years, mostly in Asia, frankly, trying to find businesses that looked like Amazon or looked like Alibaba. And I walked in to these economies, which were really underpenetrated from a digital standpoint, which didn't have e-commerce offerings, big economies like India, Korea, Indonesia, they had small starts to e-commerce, but they didn't have deeply penetrated large-scale platforms. And I got excited about the opportunity to bring what is a proven business model in the West or in China to emerging economies who deserve the same level of assortment and service and pricing. And so that's where I ended up focusing in economies that, frankly, the institutional capital had kind of ignored because I think those markets just didn't have enough size or consumer wallet or wherewithal to be that interesting. Um, So I, I, I was taking something known. I was taking something been proven in the US and in China. And I was taking it with a bit of faith that I could trust these emerging economies to be a good place to put our capital. So how did you think, because obviously, you know, China and the US, two of the biggest com- uh, economies in the world, and I know that you, um, you know, invested in economies that were you know, emerging, but also, you know, a lot smaller. Um, how did you make the decision that um, at scale, if these companies, you know, proved out and were able to reach certain scale, that they, they actually could be um, viable um um, quite large businesses that actually made sense for SoftBank since you aren't writing, you know, small checks um, um, to to these companies. I, you know, it's, it's so much fun to flash back and think about decisions made and how much dissent there always was. Um, I, I look at decisions to put two and a half billion dollars of capital into Flipkart in India when the Indian press had been awash with stories about Flipkart failing for two years prior, which was never true, um, but was kind of consensus that that was going to be a hard path forward. I think about putting $3 billion of capital into Coupang when the world had kind of decided that Korea was too small. Um, You have to, at some point, formulate a viewpoint based on enough work, uh, enough, enough data points, enough conviction and teams on the ground that you can see an alternative view. And when I looked at those economies, I did see economies that were large enough, um, maybe over a much longer horizon than I'd like, but that ultimately were large enough to build the type of density you need for these infrastructure intensive companies. And so I formulated a viewpoint that was probably based on a little bit more hope than I would have been allowed to in my private equity days. Um, But I, I got really fortunate that I partnered with just exceptional management teams who have grinded it out on really hard business models and hard economies and have built really scaled significant companies today. How do you also think about, you know, because you're, these were also, I believe, you know, new markets for you as well, going into some of these more emerging markets. How did you think about the value that you could add from, you know, the, the, the SoftBank platform per se? And what are maybe some of the similarities working in emerged versus you know emerging markets that that you found? I think I gave myself and ourselves too much credit. I walked into these markets thinking that I had done a lot of homework and that I understood 
Alibaba and, and its journey in the Chinese market, that I understood Amazon and its journey in Western markets, that I could bring some of that global knowledge to management teams. I do, by the way, I think that's true. Board members have an ability to help management teams look up and see what's happening around the world. I think what I underestimated was how different these markets all are and how they demand a very different solution than the established global behemoths. And so I, I guess I thought I could add more value than ultimately I could through just accrued knowledge. Um, I think ultimately the value you end up offering as a board member is very different and it's more judgment-based. And so how do you make sure that you help management teams focus on what's most important um, is very different than how do I help them strategically define how to build a business. And so um I'm learning every year and I'm trying to get better every year. I, and I'm having to rethink what my job is every year, but I think um, I'm proud of the the work we've done. And a big part of that, frankly, with this strategy has been bringing a big enough check size to markets that just didn't have international capital to pre-build the infrastructure that is demanded in advance of utilization that supports it from an economic standpoint. I think in terms of Developed versus international markets or, or undeveloped markets, um, you know, it there are so many lessons learned, but I, I do think a couple fundamentals just have to be true in great business building, and and maybe it's easiest for me to compare a company like Fanatics, which I backed in the same era as a Coupang or a Flipkart or a Tokopedia, which is the domestic leader in licensed sports and apparel uh, and, and goods in the United States, which is ultimately these companies that have been successful have found ways to create advantage in delivering their services and products relative to the rest of the market. Um, so going head to head against people who can compete in the exact same way is not a very significant advantage. And thinking that cash alone will buy you advantage is something I think the market has disproven. But but having really hard-nosed entrepreneurs who are really focused on building advantage and really understand capital allocation, I think has been core to success in all of these case studies. No, I I I really um really do appreciate that. I mean, because I know that what you know part of what SoftBank I would say is, is, is quite well known for is, you know, um, putting to work, um, quite a lot of capital in, um, in, in quite early stage companies. And how do you think about as well, when you're, when you're deploying, uh, this capital about unit economics eventually, and how, if those will actually map out into profitable, sustainable, you know, kind of real businesses per se. I think we have learned so much over the past five, six, seven years. We have to put ourselves in a different place and time when we think about when we launched the Vision Fund. So I joined SoftBank in 2015. We wrote our first checks out of the Vision Fund in 2017. We really were employing a dramatically different model when it came to venture capital than had existed. And it's hard to remember that because, of course, the SoftBank model has been used by everybody over the last two years. Um, but there was a lot of dissent when we launched it. And, and I think SoftBank launched it with the curiosity to understand, could we turn things upside down in terms of established norms? In many cases, it didn't work. And I think the market has been right in terms of why it didn't work, or at least the 2016, 17, 18 market was right. Um, I, I think we did learn that you can't 
broadly overfund companies because the vast majority of management teams don't think hard enough about capital allocation. And it is very easy to be sloppy and think that you can win through cash alone. Um, That has never been the case in any of the companies that I've worked with. They haven't won because they put more cash into cap into customer acquisition promotions. I actually think that has has shown a pretty negative trajectory when businesses do that. Um, These are companies that used capital to create advantages that were more sustainable and long lasting. Um, But if you look broadly at the strategy that the entire market employed in 2019, 2021, it was about pre-buying scale through promotions, through customer acquisition. And you learn over time that those are pretty fragile foundations for a business. So we have learned so many lessons about large checks. I think they work in some instances where you have a very disciplined leader or a management team who have really thought out over a long-term horizon, how do I create advantage? And there are some business models that demand some pre-funding vis-a-vis ultimate ability to drive very attractive unit economics. But the most, most businesses will never get there because it just requires too much discipline to actually shape those businesses over time. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's um, because once, once of course you deploy that capital, the, the the idea is is for the company to actually spend that uh, spend that capital and so it's a question of you know um can they actually spend that efficiently um quite quickly and i think that um that question has become you know um has become a question if they're if they're actually able to do because there's so few companies that actually can um spend it efficiently where it actually makes sense I think we for I think the technology industry has been trying to or forgot or has been trying to learn a couple lessons. I mean, can you scale businesses through increasing headcount? You know, I'm I'm a believer that you can't. Um, can you actually buy customer loyalty? I'm a believer that you can't. And and I think that I think it is fair and right that we've tested those those questions. I think it's important to test things we um, have thought were understood. We've got to constantly be testing. Um, but I, I think we've got pretty clear indications right now that capital deployed against more, uh, less ephemeral relationships, I think goes to, to better uh, economic returns over time. So I also wanted to talk about um, Fanatics as well, because I think it's such an interesting business, because of course, it's tied to the licensing of of sports franchises and um, and sports. What makes it, I know that it's an, an exceptional business, but what actually makes an exceptional business per se? Because you're so, I imagine you're so, you're so tied towards the licensing that maybe the sports teams have so much leverage on the actual business itself. What did you see when you actually made that investment? Yeah, I, I talked at the beginning of our conversation about how I really wrote off the US back in 2015, 16, 17. And I said, Amazon owns everything. I don't even want to be in the US. Um, Fanatics was the only e-commerce business I spent time with in that era where there were very clear moats vis-a-vis Amazon. And those moats are embedded in those long-term exclusive licenses that Fanatics enjoys. I think there has always been a question about what is the longevity of those relationships? Do the leagues enjoy a lot of power? Is, Is that ultimately platform power that the leagues have that you're subjecting yourself to as an investor? But 
you know, I think Michael, Ruben, and team have been laser focused on how do we take a pretty sclerotic, fragmented industry that wasn't serving anyone well, it wasn't serving the leagues well, it wasn't serving the players well, it wasn't serving customers well. And how do we drive the type of efficiency throughout a verticalized model that allows us to return more capital to all of those different constituencies. And so if you take a step back and say, what is the revenue the leagues were getting, the league or the teams were getting out of their sales back five years ago relative to today, it's a step function difference. And so when you've created that much value for the leagues, you've built a very strong relationship with them. When you've created that value with the players and with the customers, um, uniquely that you can provide, you create a lot of relationship goodwill and longevity to those relationships. So I think it is always fair to say, could the leagues actually translate those licenses over to somebody else? But I think what Michael and team have done so beautifully is they've built a verticalized platform that can frankly produce a product, a, a quality, a timeliness that no one else can do at this point. And it's it's a really nice symbiotic relationship. So that's, that is a perfect example of a company where if you'd asked the market three years ago, they would have thought TAM was pretty capped. And what it's been so much fun over the last two years is to see the, the TAM on that company just explode. So that's, that's pretty interesting because when I, when I originally thought about sports licenses, I think of, of course, like um, cable and TV. And of course, um, a lot of chatter about how um, the um, sports licenses is just getting really, really kind of crazy um, in terms of what the numbers are. But of course, in the TV, you have, you have all the different networks kind of competing the, against each other and driving the price. And so in this scenario, you don't really have that at all. You, you really have fanatics that actually are, um, that have, um, that have taken kind of it, what was once kind of fractionalized and actually built leverage by actually um, uh, combining it to actually build leverage against maybe per se the league. That's, that's absolutely right. And the other thing you have that you don't have in cable systems or networks is in those instances, you actually have declining viewership. And so when you talk about being a distributor who has relied on selling seats effectively, you talk about um, any of your content providers who sell their channels to Comcast, who sells it onto a customer, is you have an underlying declining customer base. Um, and so that is you know, reducing the number of re- the amount of revenue you can actually get out of a customer base with more competition for those rights. So it is actually a pretty broken fundamental business model if you're looking for businesses to increase earnings over time. Um, Fanatics is in a very different position where we have put a lot of effort into making sure that we can uniquely provide the single best solution for all of these constituencies that no one else can compete with at this point. Um, and how do we uh, continue to support the U.S. consumer that loves their sports and and doesn't have that same downward pressure on the wallet share going into sports that cable TV does. Thinking about e-commerce um, in general, uh, how has your themes or where you actually spend time when it comes to e-commerce changed uh, since starting to invest in e-commerce in, in 2015? Yeah, so when I started spending time in commerce from a soft bank standpoint, I thought there was so much value to be had internationally relative to domestic. And part of that, frankly, was the capital markets. So there was so little institutional capital internationally, and the soft bank brand was so powerful internationally in a way it wasn't in the United States, um, that there was just great 
asymmetry. I thought there was much better value to be had internationally. Um, as more capital has flown into the international markets and it's gotten sort of globally competitive from a capital standpoint, I have come back to the United States because what's always been true is this is the most important market in the world from a customer wallet standpoint, from an innovation standpoint, from a capital market standpoint. And so there's a lot of inherent value in this market that doesn't necessarily exist to the same degree internationally, especially when you have this sort of decoupling of the globe or, or you know, the splitting of the globe happening right now. Um, so as we come back to the U.S., we have to redefine a thesis because I still do believe in the power of an Amazon, uh, the power of a Fanatics, the power of a Shopify or a Walmart. So if we're not going to have a thesis that's predicated on building the next great horizontal e-commerce platform, how do we add value in this economy? And so we have been thinking really hard about our theses, and we've been trying to apply a global lens to say what are innovations happening around the world that are interesting, that are driving real customer value that are scaling and how might they apply in the U.S. Um, and that that is one part of how we thesis build. So as, as we think about e-commerce in the U.S. today, we're thinking really hard about things like automation. We're thinking hard about the decoupling of uh, last mile or fulfillment activities relative to a front-end consumer website. We're thinking about video. Um, we're thinking about how do we actually attract and engage consumers? How do we do that through uh, creators? Um, so I think we're we're trying to think about how do we make an e-commerce experience fundamentally better by deconstructing what is an e-commerce experience and thinking about where we can inject change in the system that might actually scale. And that's how we're thinking about addressing thesis building here today. When I think about the e-commerce experience, especially that um, kind of on the front end, I would say, um, I, I always kind of think um, I've I've heard investors on the podcast before go to China where, uh, where where there's a lot of kind of innovation especially in the live streaming space um, and um, and so how how do you think about you know when where there's other um, other countries that might be ahead of the United States um, in these different I would say stack when it comes to e-commerce um, these um, uh, how what do you think is transferable that actually could become uh, interesting businesses here in the United States and, and quite large businesses versus ones where you actually where you actually think that the culture is just a little bit different? I am so thankful to sit on a platform that's as global in nature as we are. Again, when I started in 2015, the institutional capital markets thought the United States was the center of innovation. There was nothing else anywhere that mattered. Um, and I was one of those investors. And then I joined SoftBank and had the opportunity to compare assets across China and India, Indonesia, the United States, and have watched this surge of innovation on a global basis. And it is so exciting to watch innovation applied to consumer behaviors and to try and think through that very question you just asked, which is what is transferable? And if it's not transferable, why not? And what does that mean in terms of how it might come to America? So I have spent a lot of years thinking about this, a lot of years looking at it. I do not believe we're going to see live shopping or social shopping that looks like the Chinese experience here in the United States. But I do believe we are going to see innovation and change, and some of it might be grounded in some of what we see in China. And so we have been 
thinking a lot about this. We've been thinking about why the, why are these markets different? What do the customers expect and demand? Why won't it transfer perfectly? I think it's so interesting to just think about how economic development really drives consumer behavior. And so in China, when you think about things like live streaming, there or live shopping, there are a couple different reasons why it has exploded. One of which is you have a huge manufacturing base that is trying to quickly distribute at volume at low prices with a very cheap distribution network, um, huge volumes of goods. None of that is true in the United States. We don't manufacture huge volumes of unbranded goods. We don't have an incredibly cheap, efficient last mile. Um, we don't have a consumer that doesn't have trust in brands and is looking for a voice to give them faith in brands. We have a consumer that believes in brands. We have had you know, 100 years of brand building and, and brand development in the U.S. Um, so there's there are big systemic reasons why the Chinese consumer is different than the U.S. consumer. That said, it is undeniably true that video drives consistently better engagement and um, recall from a consumer standpoint. And so we believe that video will be a bigger component of how do we as consumers inform ourselves and how do we purchase? We just think it will be in a different form factor for different reasons. And so do we think that we're going to apply what we've seen with the really big platforms in China, exactly the same form factor over here? No, um, but we're really excited about some of the applications coming in very different form factors. So we we did invest in a company last year that supports the distribution of live shopping capabilities across on an enterprise basis. So how do you think about bringing the beauty from a technology standpoint of a TikTok, but putting it on a Walmart or Safeway or Lululemon website? Um, and what we see in that is just beautiful uplift on consumer engagement and conversion. And so we're, we're really excited to try and pull threads and figure out how do we invest behind these themes and and how do we help push forward a little bit of the future that, that is going to come. It'll be slower than people want, but we'll be surprised how quickly it came when we look back. What has this as well taught you about, you know, how a consumer shops and like the future of how you think a consumer will shop? Yeah, we, we did talk uh, a while ago about e-commerce aggregators. And I think it's been such an interesting last two years to think about the, I think my, my expectations around how hard it is to build a business on an open marketplace and really have visibility into your sustainable margin structure. Um, my expectations probably haven't changed. I think that is a really hard mountain to climb. Um, impossible. No, I, I think great operators can of course climb that mountain, but it is really just structurally more difficult than, than other business decisions you might make. Um, but I, I do think what has been wild to watch over the last two years is the amount of volatility we've seen in our own market here in America. You think about two years of a white collar worker adjusting to a very different reality when it comes to work and outfitting a space to accommodate that. You think about how fragile this web of a global supply chain is and how many different points of breakage we've seen. Um, you know, I, I think inflation, I, I'm pretty old. I've been investing for 20 years now and I have never seen inflation. So I really don't understand it, particularly in a point in time when you have such strong uh, 
consumer or workforce. Um, so I, there's just so much volatility happening right now at the exact same time. It's really hard to break it apart and understand what is systemically um, going to be ongoing and, and what is what are we just tackling in a moment. Um, I do think we a lot of the original reasons that investors got into backing e-commerce aggregators continue to be true, which is we need to create more trust for consumers who are battling a more and more difficult shopping experience on open marketplaces. And so how do we help um, bring capital and professionalism to thinking about how we operate? That's the original thesis. We, we've got to get to a more normalized market environment before we can start evaluating if, if that thesis holds as fully as we want it to. I appreciate you also just uh, saying what the original thesis was um, and and the reason why the aggregators, um, well, the opportunity that you actually saw um, originally and that you're still bullish on it for the future. Just um, just this is a, a, a very tough period. I know it's it's obviously a, a very tough period, you know, from a, a macroeconomic standpoint, as you said, we haven't had inflation. Um, what was inflation these, these past 20 years, right? Um, so, um, so, and I know that obviously this has been, you know, very hard hitting towards um, SoftBank, um, which I know you've um, SoftBank lost um, several billion dollars this year. And what 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 have been your kind of biggest takeaways this year as your as an investor, as someone who who invests and maybe and 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 how you're going to continue to invest? This, has this changed anything? I think we, as an investor group, as a technology growth investor group, have learned a lot this year. It's I was an economics major in college. I've spent my entire career in finance. I should understand economics at this point, um, but you know, ultimately, it's been proven I don't. Um, I I think we all understood the textbook math about what interest rates meant for market multiples, and yet we've been living in such a benign growth environment for the past ten years that we had we had to tell ourselves um, that a new reality was upon us because otherwise you couldn't compete in the market. And then, did you deserve to have a job deploying capital? Um, so we have learned about what is in, what do interest rates mean. Um, we've learned about the reality of, of public market multiples in that environment. So I think that is a very big difference. Um, so I think that funnels through. So what does that mean? It means that you have to build companies very, very differently. You can't assume that you're going to have cheap capital to fund a business. And therefore, you need to actually go back in some ways to what venture looked like 10, 20 years ago, which is to drive returns, given valuations will be lower, you have to assume less capital goes in and you have to assume more efficient deployment of it. And so you're seeing that right now in board discussions. You're seeing that in the headcount reductions across technology which is we've got to go back to thinking about how to drive much more efficient enterprise value growth. So I think that is a really big change that is just shaking the industry right now. I think it's a very healthy change, um, but it, it is uh, perhaps should have been expected, but I, it's, it's fascinating to go through. Um, I am personally very excited by it. I think it's going to create much better businesses. Um, you know, I, I think the, all the historical lessons are proving to be true. You've got to be focused as a business builder, really disciplined when you think about capital allocation. Um, you've got to be really thoughtful about how we think about OPEX in a business. We were in a, we entered tech, I entered technology 
so excited because technology businesses were meant to be able to scale asymmetrically to OPEX. Um, you were meant to be able to get great leverage out of technology businesses. And what we have shown as an industry over the past five, 10 years is actually kind of the opposite. I think you could argue we've actually put far more money into OPEX and, and stock-based comp than we've seen in revenue growth. And so I think that's a good time for us all to take a step back and say, is this industry as efficient as we think it should be? And if not, why not? Um, so that, again, is what you're seeing shaking out in the industry right now. How does this change as well how you think about the amount of capital you should deploy in you know early stage companies per se? Yeah, I think we we are all learning every day. Hopefully that's uh, how you make an investor. You, you make a lot of mistakes and then ultimately you try and not make them again. Um, if I take a look at what we did before we launched the Vision Fund, if I think about Vision Fund 1, we were myopically focused on how do we back the clear number one breakaway winner in a market um, with an assumption that there aren't that many great companies and you want to back the right ones, period, full stop. I think the market over the last couple of years said, look how easy it is to build big businesses. Um, let's back many, many more of them. And so we collectively, certainly we at SoftBank went and, and backed an earlier stage strategy and with smaller check sizes, but, but too much capital for businesses that hadn't yet really nailed business models. And so we're right now, the world, and this is not SoftBank specific, I think it's growth equity specific, are, are staring at you know, thousands of companies that are really trying to nail business models, are very well funded, have a lot of time to figure it out, but still have to nail business models. And I don't think that was true in pre-Vision Fund or Vision Fund 1, where we were backing fundamentally later stage breakout winners. So you know, I think that is very different and in terms of the company stage and when you should put as much capital as you are into a business. So that's one of my biggest learnings. No, it's helpful. Um, do you think we will ever see valuations like they were in the past couple of years? No way. I mean, I shouldn't say never, but um, do I think it would be rational for us to see valuations like we did? No way. I, I keep coming back to the same thing, which is I, I know this is true because I've been doing this for so long. There aren't that many exceptional companies. Um, and what we did for the last couple of years is we said every company is going to be exceptional. And I, I think reality has taken hold. I think that's healthy. It's good. I think you know the best companies are built in periods of time where you can aggregate talent more easily as opposed to diffuse it across an industry. Um, so do I think valuations will ever hit the stratosphere again? No, but I, I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, I, I think last year created a lot of very unhealthy business behavior. Um, venture capitalists created it, institutional capital created it. Um, and, and I think we're going to create better businesses and better returns going forward. I know we talked about this um, initially, how you think about the market um, or um, in your due diligence process and the opportunity, but also in your due diligence process, how do you also evaluate founders per se? And how do you, and how do you um, build that trust? Um, especially, I mean, in the last couple of years, I'd imagine it had to be built trust very, very quickly since, um, since deals were moving so fast. But how do you think about that part, that aspect of your diligence process and, and, and your own process? Uh, trust means so much to me. You know, once we decide to back a founder, once we decide to join hands and jump into the abyss together, we're together. 
we are we are aligned. And I think something that is sometimes missed by people is that that alignment is very real. You know, we are not in a position where we're going to come in and run your business. I'll never have the capabilities to do that. Um, I, it's not really possible for me to go out and find somebody to replace you. Like we are aligned. I am aligned with you, and I want to make you better. And so um, that demands that we have a working relationship where we can speak freely and honestly and have difficult discussions, but know we have each other's backs. And I think that is how you create great companies over time when you have people around the table where there's active dissent, but you know you're both rowing in the same direction and and want to build the same thing. Um, I am not an investor who believes I'm going to make my money back by trying to cut a fast one on somebody. Like we, This is a long, long-term game. You have to win in size for it to matter to me. And so that's, that's where we're focused. Um, and so you asked the question about trust. And the reason I lean so heavily into it is I think the industry has kind of said you can't trust your investors. And I just think that is a big tax to put on founders. It's a big tax to put on businesses. Um, and I do think it ties your hands behind your back. You'd much rather have the people around your table really be, be in your trusted network. So a big part of our diligence process above and beyond doing our quantitative diligence, which is how we start, is how do we feel in terms of that trust building exercise? Will we be able to work together? Will we be able to speak honestly with each other? Are we on the same boat? I think it's a big part of how we decide what we do. Um, but where do we start? You know, we're growth equity investors. And so we don't back pre-revenue companies. We really are looking for quantitative data that suggests that you have a pretty exceptional start to your business um, and a path to economics that will drive real value for your equity shareholders. So we start with the quantitative diligence first, and then we spend a lot of time making sure this is a partnership that will work. No, that's, that's, um, I, I really appreciate that. Do you ever get worried when you do write, you know, a large um, check in a company that maybe, um, a, a, maybe a large portion of that, of, of that, or, or, or a portion of that is actually a secondary from the founder that it could actually then detract um, away from how committed they are to the business or, or not so much. So it's, it's such an interest. Sometimes I feel like an old lady after just seven years at SoftBank. Um, meaning when I started in 2015, there was no such thing as founder secondary. Um, and you could make the case that SoftBank started it because we certainly did some of it. Um, I've never personally done any founder secondary at any meaningful scale in any of my companies, but I've certainly seen it across our portfolio. Um, I think a lot of changes happen over the course of an entrepreneur's life. It is a brutally hard thing to build a company for so many reasons, including the fact that your skill set has to change every day, it seems, to keep up with a growing and changing organization and what it demands of you. Um, I also think you're taught a lot of lessons along the way. You're, you're taught that you're, when you succeed, when you build a big company, you're taught that your judgment is better than everyone else's because it has been. You have been told over and over by everyone that you're wrong, and yet you've built something big. Um, and so I think when you've built a really big company and you've taken secondary out, sometimes you lose the ability to listen to people around you. Um, and I think that's where it gets a little dangerous. Um, and so this, again, comes back to how do you 
build the trust in the people around you. And those people don't need to stay the same. I think people should be changing out their board members and changing out the skills around the table. But you've got to make sure that you have people around you you can listen to, um, who can help keep you grounded as your world changes. So secondary is a part of that. Um, you know, we when I joined SoftBank, I was pretty uncomfortable with the context, the just the concept of, of secondary. Um, Masa was more comfortable with it because he wanted entrepreneurs to have the ability to think about a really big outcome and not be attracted by the small outcome because it provided some security for their families. I didn't really understand it at the time. Um, I've seen a few instances where I think it would have been really helpful and I understand where he's coming from. And so it's a complicated story. Do I think secondary should be modest in size? Yes. I would love to have more aligned incentives around the table. Um, do I think it should be outlawed? No. I, I think it's I think it is a valuable What's the biggest thing? I know you joined Top Bank in 2015, but what what's maybe your biggest thing or lesson learned from Masa? Oh, Masa's extraordinary. Um, he's extraordinary. So I had come from a traditional investing world. I'd been at two investing platforms um, with very reasonable people like myself around the table who establish a strategy. You go out and you tell your LPs your strategy, and then you follow that strategy forever because you can't change, because that's what you've told people you're going to do. Um, Masa has none of that. You know, I think in in Masa's, to his great favor, he has an ability to change and pivot so fast that I think is just beautiful. Um, he's willing to look at the world differently every day and say, what was wrong about what I used to believe? And just say, I'm sorry, mea culpa, and move on. And I think that creates a dynamism that has kept SoftBank's relevance growing over time. And yes, it's easy to to just treat them like a lightning pole and talk about failures and mistakes. Um, it's easy for all of us to talk about failures and mistakes around us. But I do think undeniably, he has just continued to grow and ascend in terms of the relevance of his business. Um, and I really do credit that to his ability to have a real simple framework in front of him, which is where are there tailwinds? Where is really significant tailwind there to help push my direction forward? Um, and I'm willing to change my ideas based on new variables. And I think that, again, it's a beautiful dynamism to him. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, I also just, I also really appreciate how he's very forthcoming when, you know, he's wrong. Um, that not all, not every not many investors are, especially that publicly. I thought that was um, really impressive. What's one book that's inspired you personally, and one book that's inspired you professionally? I um, love reading. I at various stages in life don't get enough time for it, including with young children today. Um, but there have been a handful of books that have kept me thinking for a long time. So I, on a personal level. I, I kind of like businesses that help me understand how the economics of the world work. And so I, I read a book called A Good Provider is One Who Leaves, which talks about the Filipino migration of healthcare workers around the world that just helps you understand the economic drivers of globalization, of workforce globalization, which is fascinating. Or another book I read called Janesville, an American Story, talks about what happens when you close the big employer in town? And how do you think about the economics of a town that get disrupted? And how do you rebuild from there? That really 
pushed back a bunch of my assumptions and learnings. So I found that fascinating. From a business perspective, there's a book called The Outsiders, which profiles eight CEOs who've built extraordinary equity value or enterprise value over time. And it helped crystallize for me how important understanding capital allocation is in equity value creation. And I just think that is such an important lesson to know, which so few founders and venture capitalists understand. Um, and I think is really important to think about in, embedding in, in the team around you. And then I loved Shoe Dog, which was Phil Knight's story about Nike, because it just shows how messy these businesses are to build, what a complete mess and how fragile it all is. And yet at the end, there's something beautiful left standing. So um, these are a few books that have resonated with me and stick with, stuck with me for years. Really, I, I appreciate you mentioning these three, three and, 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 and also the reasons why. Really excited to add these to our list. My final question to you is, what's one piece of advice you have for founders? We've talked about it a little bit. I think trust is so fundamental to your business. And it's for some of the reasons we've talked about, which is no one has a linear path to success. A quick path to success doesn't really exist in my mind. Um, there's too many bumps in the road. And I think reducing friction along the way, including by having people around you that you trust. And I don't mean people who sort of follow you blindly, but people who push back on you and tell you when you're wrong, um, that you're comfortable with receiving, I think is just invaluable. And so again, like if you don't have that, change out the people around you until you do, but you got to have people who disagree with you that you trust. Um, and then, you know, as I think this is going to follow my book recommendations, it is just so messy and be comfortable. It's going to take time and it's going to be ugly and you're going to question what you're doing day to day. Um, but it is, I found that if you can stay alive long enough, if you can stay focused enough, you can build a real business much more easily than you would have expected. So those are a few things I think about every day. I appreciate that, Lydia. Um, I, I, I really like those those thoughts. Trust and also it's, it's going to be messy. You have to know that going into it. Um, Lydia, thank you so much for your time. This has been so much fun. Well, thank you. It's really fun to spend time with you finally. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure having Lydia on. I really hope you all enjoyed it. Again, if you're enjoying this episode, I highly recommend subscribing to the newsletter at theconsumervc.com for all episodes directly in your inbox, as well as a weekly roundup of all the venture deals happening.